Just a quick warning, this podcast series contains discussions about crime, trauma, sexual abuse, drug use and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. I used to rob banks in the 80s and 90s and did 23 years in prison in three different states. It took 30 years to talk about the sexual abuse that happened to me and the spiral into crime, addiction and depression that all occurred as a result. Now, having turned my life around, I talk openly to inspirational people about trauma, survival, transformation and hope. I am Russell Manser and this is The Stick Up. Johnny Walker grew up in the western suburbs of Melbourne. Johnny's a well-known boxer in Melbourne and in Australia. Johnny went on to become a sergeant of arms in the Banditos Outlaw Motorcycle Club. Johnny got himself in a bit of mischief. He served eight years for manslaughter. Whilst in prison, John realised that he had to change his ways, otherwise he would be spending a lot of time in prison. Johnny Walker, welcome to The Sticker. Good to be here, Russell. Thanks for having me. Mate, I remember when you got released from prison and I was watching on social media the love people have for you, like, and not just one or two people. There was hundreds and hundreds of people wishing you uh, all the best and welcoming you home. And, I, and, you know, and that's what drew my attention. I thought, you know, this guy's a special guy. And then I, and I looked you up and I looked at your boxing career. Very handy guy, very tough. No one fear, you're a fierce competitor. And I just thought, I've got to get to know this guy. And I asked him to message you and I said, mate, let's, I'd love to get to meet you. And, and here we are. Yeah. Like you say sometimes, like we've known each other for 30 years, you know. Yeah. Just get along real good, you know. I get that feeling from you. There's, you know, you get a few of those people that are walking in your life. It's like you know each other's stories, and I, I have no doubt that our story, stories are, are very similar. Mate, tell us about where it all started for you. Where did you grow up, and what was your family life like? And uh, I grew up in the western suburbs of Melbourne in a place called Newport. Uh, it was a blue-collar working area, a lot of uh, wharfies, just tradies, and um, I grew up with mum and dad. You know, I wouldn't say it was a it was a hard upbringing, but it was just it was just that era, it was that time. You know, yeah. if you mucked up, your dad'd give you a smack, or even your mum would give you a smack. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it was just that era, you know. But um, obviously, growing up in the western suburbs, it was uh, it was a knockabout sort of area. You'd fight for yours. You know what I mean? Someone tried to take your pushy, you'd punch on for it. Or that was that was just as kids. You know, that's just that's just how we grew up. That's that's how we were raised. You know, for my dad, uh, being his eldest son was always very important to him that I could look after myself and protect myself and that was a that was like a big thing for him so I always grew up with that sort of mentality. Is that where the boxing started the self-defense sort of stuff and at what age did that start it? Yeah so I started uh, from a younger age about nine years old I started kickboxing and uh, back then it was traditional kickboxing which was gradings Um, I did that I did that for a good three four years then obviously started high school 13 and then sort of Break away from that. Uh, start hanging around with the, you know, start hanging around the lads and making a bit, making a bit more trouble. And then the, that's when uh, my old man dragged me down the boxing gym when I was about fourteen. Who was your first boxing trainer? Uh, Cliff Chamberlain, yeah. just a, a good, tough amateur fighter. Had a, had a few pro fights. Had a detached retina back in the day, and that yeah. that retired yeah. him. Yeah. But um, just one of them tough. Yeah, you know, he'd, he'd wash his mouth uh, mouth guard out with a long neck, homemade <laughs> long neck. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. Who were your role models? Who were your role models growing up as a kid? Who did you want to be like? As in, as in the boxing? Yeah. Um, listen, I've always, from a kid, I've always idolised Mike Tyson. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just, uh, I think, what attracted me to him is, like, his upbringing coming from the wrong side of the tracks and ending up where he did. That was always, uh, uh, like, something I could look look up to and, you know, if he could do it, we can do it, you know what yeah. I mean, sort of thing. So Yeah. Yeah. What about local local sort of people in the area, you know, was th- was there anyone that sort of went on to be... Well, Jeff Fennick was another one that I always looked up to. Yeah. Obviously, same sort of same sort of thing as Mike Tyson, you know, a uh, street kid, street fighter, got to a boxing gym and become world champion, you know, so that was, that was another one that I always... Jeff Harding was another one. No, my favourite, Jeff yeah. Harding. yeah. I remember two sporting events when Jeff Jeff Fennick beat Yogoki Shingaki for his first world title. Yeah. And I can remember on a Monday watching Australia win the Americanist Cup in yachting. Not that I like yachting, but I just think they were two, uh, two moments in his, Australian sporting history. Do you yeah. remember when Jeff won his first title? Yeah, I remember. I, remember, I would have been, I would have been real young then. The, the biggest fight of Jeff's I remember was Zuma Nelson. Yeah, in Melbourne. They, yeah, where they where they robbed him. Yeah, and uh, I remember as a kid, I was shattered. I mean, yeah. I, I would have tears in my eyes. I mean, I remember watching that with my dad. 
and watching the fight and um, like clearly, you know, to me as a someone that's been in the sport, he, Jeff won clearly and they robbed him and yeah, I was shattered as a kid. Did boxing sort of bond you and your dad form a, a strong bond between you and your dad through boxing? Yeah, I think a hundred percent. Like like I said before, it was always a it was always a big thing for my dad for his oldest boy to be able to protect himself and the original plan I think my dad just sent me to a boxing gym to teach me a lesson. So obviously I was a bit of a punk and thought I was tougher than everyone else and so he sent me down there. So obviously in a boxing gym you're always gonna find bigger and better and I copped a few hidings. I mean, I, I copped a few hidings for years before I had the skill to give them back. But um, I think that was his plan, you know, just to teach me that uh, there's always someone bigger and better. But Do you reckon it give you st- structure and discipline? A hundred percent. I mean, um, I get asked this question a lot by, you know, um, by parents and kids that have had, you know, trouble at school and do you think it's going to make them worse? They're going to go to school and beat people. Well, I said, not with the discipline. You, with the discipline you learn in the boxing gym, it's, it's structured, you know what I mean? It's it's not taught, it's not for you to go out and be a gangster or a thug. Mm. It's structured and it teaches, and you're not just, you're not always winning in a boxing gym. Some spars, you'll go there, you'll get beaten up, the next day you'll come back, you'll do, you'll do better. So it, it levels you out, because if you look at a bully, like, I mean, from the prison system, people that bully someone that's weaker than them, they've never really copped it back. As soon as they cop it back, they don't like it. Yeah. So I, I guess the boxing gym's the same sort of mentality. You'll come there if you're a tough kid. You'll get through it, but you're always going to get you're always going to get beaten somewhere. Someone's going to beat you in the spa, or you're going to have an off day, and then you come back. You come back better, and you might lose another one. You might win. So it's always it keeps you that level. You know, you're not you're not you're not the king always. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's humbling, isn't it? Yeah, that's what that's exact that's the best word for it. Humbles you. Yeah. I think uh, I've got this saying, and I say uh, boxing saved. I hate to disappoint all the Christians, but uh, I think boxing saved more lives than Jesus. You know, hundred percent. I mean, yeah. Look at the um, averages of boxers that, like, especially when I was coming through the boxing gym, a lot of kids come from broken homes, in and out of juvie, whatever it was. And once they once they got that drive, once they were aiming for what, it doesn't matter if it was amateurs or professional. It, they were aiming for something. That, I mean, it took them away from everything bad they were doing. I spoke to Mark Burris. Mark Burris, uh, Yellow Brick Road businessman. I had him on the podcast a couple of weeks and he goes, there's so many analogies in boxing or parallels in boxing and business. He said, you know, you've got to be one of those people that can get back off your ass when you get knocked down, you get down. You've got to have the discipline. You've got to have the direction. You've got to have the focus. And yeah. um, how's that served you in other areas of your life? With the boxing, like I said before, it's, uh, with a boxing career, it's, it's very up and down. It's not, yeah. it's not always like you, like you could be winning and then next thing you have a loss and it's up and down. So, I mean, that prepared, I mean, boxing from a young age prepared me for life. I mean, any uh, turmoil, anything bad that's happened in my life, that, that headstrong attitude and black and white attitude, which is not always good, but for me, it's either 100% or nothing. So, And you've got to have that self-belief, don't you? Yeah, 100%. It's no use going in there half-cocked. Nah. I mean, as a, during my boxing career, I was probably very uh, pig-headed, selfish. Mm. I believe that any any true champion in any sport has got to be that. Yeah. You know what I mean? 110%. And um, what was your record? How many amateur fights did you have? So I had about about 80 amateur fights. Wow. Yeah, in the league and the association, yeah. Yeah, it got, it got a little bit uh, political, didn't it, when the yeah. league and the association, yeah, that's the two different uh, bodies for amateur boxing here in Australia, either with one or with the other. Yeah, so I broke off from, I broke off from the league at, as a young kid and went with the association. And the association was always connected with the Olympics and all that sort of stuff. So yeah. that was the better sort of. Break. And is that what was any of your goals to sort of go to the Olympics or amateur boxing back in the day was a was a point system. So yeah. you had three you had three judges sitting around the ring, and at least two of them judges had to see the punch land to get the one point. So mm. sometimes you'd go through a four round fight, and you'd see the score would be five to three. You mm. know what I mean? After a total war. My style of fighting was always walk up, in your face, sort of a brawler. Mm. So it never really suited me, the amateur style. It was more one, twos, long punches. Yeah. So my, we all, even as from a young kid, 15, 16, we, my aim was always to turn professional. How old were you when you turned professional? 22. And what weight did you start off at? As a, as a professional, I was super middleweight, so yeah. 76. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And who trained you from there? Like, did you stay with your your, your coach? So I went. I went with Cliffy Chamberlain. had a, had a lot of amateur fights under Cliffy. Then I ended up going with uh, Kevin and Mick Hargraves in Port Melbourne. Yeah. And they had a tough old gym in Garden City, which is in Port Melbourne. And that was known for 
I mean, if you, you didn't walk out of that gym without, without getting any bruises. So I stayed there. I, I finished my amateur career there and then turned professional under them. Yeah. And then uh, Kevin Hargrave was, was ill and wasn't able to train us anymore. So I ended up moving over with uh, Dave Higgity, who I still... Yeah, you're still good friends with today. Yeah, still yeah. good friends with today and run Tarnit Boxing Gym and that with him, so... Yeah, nice. All right, so, what you know, what age did you start getting into trouble? Oh, listen, we'll, we'll get in, like, all my mates and my cousin and uh, all close friends were going, to, were getting locked up. We had trying around back in the day. Yeah. They were, like, from the age of 16, 17, they were, you know, a lot of good friends of mine were going to so, You know I mean? When, when we're talking about trouble back then, it was probably stolen cars and yeah. a, lot, a lot of fighting. Half the stuff that we got pinched for back then in punch-ups, you, you do big time for it now. Yeah, I, yeah. I've seen kids in jail in there for, a, you know, punching on in a pub. I mean, that was a regular thing for us in the yeah. western suburbs. I never I never got a criminal conviction until uh, 2002, I was about... 26 and yeah. that, that was uh, cultivating growing a bit of dope <laughs> you know what I mean and steroids yeah, yeah. you know what I mean and uh, um, taser guns and and then I've getting suspended sentence for that in the boxing game there's always those people that hang around and it, it, it's just that attracts gangsters doesn't yeah, it yeah, you know but yeah. it's, it's one of those it's one of those sports where you know you can a politician can be sitting next to a well known crime figure and you know what I mean and mingling and that sort of stuff it's just I don't know that's the beauty of boxing for me has always been the great equaliser yeah. in, in, in social status yeah. you know what I mean yeah so like for me from from a young kid I've, I've rubbed shoulders with all sorts of walks of life you know what I mean from gangsters criminals you know just street thugs whatever Obviously, like coming through the boxing gym, like you said, you meet them all. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like I said, it wasn't until thirty-two that I went to jail. Yeah, after I patched up with the Bandettos. Yeah. Let's talk about. Let's talk about into. Your, let's go into your career. Where did you, you sort of go? Like, what was the intentions to win a world title? Yeah, hundred percent. That I mean, that's obviously the looking, pinnacle. Looking up to people like Jeff and Mike mm-hmm. Tyson. I mean, that was that's what I wanted to do. That's. I mean, I did. I think I could do it. You know, I thought I could do it, but. You know I mean, um, back then boxing was a hard sport. There wasn't much money in it. It was hard to get um, on good promotions, and and I was just lucky with uh, the fight I got in Sydney with Angela Hyder against Nishi. That you know got us that war title crack. That you know, that was just a good opportunity. You know, good bloke, Angela Hyder. Shout out yeah, to Angela yeah, Hyder. Top bloke, one of the best. The boxing career. How many fights did you have as a pro? Uh, Twenty-one. 21, yeah. and what was your record on 17 that? 17 wins. Not bad. Three losses, one no content. Was it, how many knockouts in that? 13. Not bad. Yeah, 13. Good strike knockouts. rate, 75% yeah. strike rate. Yeah. Nice. Hey, after the, the sort of boxing career, what, what was there a when, – when the when the outlaw bikey stuff sort of kicked off, was it why you're, you're still fighting or – Well, Drew – the whole way through my career, I've always, I've always known, I've always known the like, boys in clubs and mm. all, spread out over Victoria, all different clubs over Australia, I should say. But um, it wasn't until I retired from boxing, so I lost lost my way a bit. Mm. Uh, went through a relationship breakdown. Did you lose your purpose? Like often, a lot of sportsmen do. We talked to, I talked to a fair few sportsmen. You got that that focus, that discipline. I went from training three times a day. And having everyone patting you on the back, you're a champion. This, that, like inviting you to, inviting you to parties, and obviously you know, with the fights after parties, and like getting invited everywhere. And then um, sort of you retire. And when when my coach pat me on the shoulder and said that you know enough's enough, and I retired, I, like three months into my retirement, I thought, what am I doing? Mm. Like I've, the phone's not ringing. The phone used to ring hundred times a day. The phone's not ringing no more. I did lose my way. I lost my way. I was very depressed. Um, had no had no structure. You know what I mean? And I was very structured the whole way from a kid with the boxing. And that's when I found myself down the clubhouse, and that's where I found that new brotherhood. And and your phone starts ringing again, and yeah. you know what I mean? It gives you a purpose. Yeah. And I felt a purpose. So when I went down there, you know what I mean? I, like I did in boxing, I thought, you know what? Well, I'm going to I'm going to be the best member I can be. What's a day like in the life of an outlaw bikey? Listen, I can't speak for. I mean, like, like I've said, I've said plenty of times before to a lot of people. You know, mo- most ninety percent of them go to work. Ninety percent of them are family men. For me, coming from a relationship breakdown, I've always I've always worked during my boxing career. Uh, what sort of? What's your working background? I'm a fitter and turner by trade. Yeah. So I've always worked, and uh, when I in 2009 when I joined the Bandidos, I thought, you know what. I had I had a bit of money put away from my boxing career and that and uh, yeah I thought you know well, I'm not working I'm doing, you know this is what I want to do full time so I just went into a full time bikey so 
that looked like you know, having lunch at a nice restaurant and mm. strippers and partying and that sort of thing, you know what I mean? So It does look sort of, I consider it myself in the same club that you went to, I know, I consider it myself and at one stage because it looks good. Yeah. But, but as you know, and you, you'd be able to describe it better than anyone else, it's not what it seems, is it? No, nah, not, not, not when the uh, – when, when it's like everything, I guess. When everything's going good, I mean, I, I had some of the best times, the best nights, you know, that I've, that I've had in my life during that period. Yeah. But I've had some of the worst too, so. How, how long were you in the club for? Uh, 12 years. Yeah. Yeah. And you made your way all the way up to – yeah, Sergeant Arms. Yeah. What's that sort of, what's Sergeant of Arms, what's, what's your role there? To keep good order of the chapter. Yeah. I was, I was a sergeant of a, of a chapter, so, you know, keep good order in the chapter. Yeah, obviously, you know, in bad times, you're the, you're the one they look to or... So you do the fighting, you do yeah, the, the yeah, discipline. Yeah, yeah that the, sort of thing, yeah. So Just, if, a, if, a, if a bloke's playing up, being a goose or something like that, you're yeah, the one who's got to sort yeah. him out. And it's all, you know, when, you, when you're wearing that patch, it's all about holding it to the highest honour that you can. So if someone's... Acted like a you know, acted like a goose, then mm. he'll be you know. An honour means a lot to you anyway, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. So for me to go into that role, it was you know what I mean, I'm, I'm more of a leader than a follower. Yeah. So I don't I don't follow too well, but if someone gives me a lead role, then I can I can take that on. The brotherhood itself, you know what you know how how was that? Like I said, in good times, the yeah. brotherhood's grouse. You know what I mean, like the, everyone's around, everyone's patting you on the back, you you, you party and you your girls, you got cars, your bikes. For me, when when I went to prison, uh, the brotherhood wasn't wasn't the same as it was when I was out. I felt like that I was forgotten about, and um, that's that's when like, and not not all the brothers, like a lot lot, you know, fifty percent of the brothers that that were there at the time mm. still kept in contact and done their best, but the other fifty, uh, so and that's disappointing, isn't it? It's yeah. not what you sort of signed up for. It's one in all in sort of thing. Yeah, it? well, brotherhood to me is everything. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. Still is, isn't it? Yeah, I've got, I mean, I've got, I've got people that are, you know, that I still class my brother, and I'd, I'd be, I mean, if they got locked away forever, I'd be there all the time. Like I said to you, when when you got out, I was watching this this thing on Facebook, and you know, man, hundreds and hundreds of messages, people welcoming you home, and fucking good to see, you and, and that, you know, how's that make you feel, man? Like being in, held in that high regard by, and not just shitbags, some really good people were doing it, you know, some yeah. well, well-respected people, especially in the boxing community. How does that make you feel? Yeah, no, I mean, it's an honour. You know I mean, um, I felt that the whole way through my career, even even as a biker, I've always um, kept my morals in the right place. Yeah. Always showed respect to people and never been a, never been a standover, never done shit goes. You know, I'd be the full, first one to pull up a shit go, you know what I mean? Yeah. If it's not, if the bloke's done nothing wrong, then the bloke's done nothing wrong, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know what I mean? So... I think that's the reason why a lot of these people still stay in contact with me and that's why I got a lot of, you know, welcome home wishes and when you were in the club, did you go overseas, do any nationals or nah, you know, just did a nah, national run nah, over here? Just here, just here. Yeah, can you explain what a national run is? That's just where so where the whole club gets together worldwide. Mm. I mean, you might have a few members from all around different parts of a, of of the world come. Not all of them will come. Mm. Half of them can't get in, but mm. When they, we all meet up, you'll pick a state. So it might be Victoria one year, it might be Queensland the next. And you all just meet up and it's just a, it's pretty much a three-day... Bender. Yeah, four-day yeah, four bender, Thursday, yeah. Friday, Saturday, and you yeah. finish up on Sunday, you know? Yeah. I, I'm really vocal on, on these bikey laws, like in particular Queensland and now Western Australia, you know what I mean? I'm so against them. It's one of the biggest abuses of human rights. You know, what are you, what's your take on it? Yeah, no, I'm... I mean, it disgusts me. I mean, uh, you got certain uh, crims that are walking out of court with CCOs for putrid crimes like sex offenders. Sex offenders, yeah, touching kids, and and then you got these bikers that just want to go to a cafe and have a lunch with their mates, and they're, you know, I mean, they're getting slapped on the wrist with these orders. Mm. You know what I mean? And these put- these putrid ones can just walk walk the streets and do what they want. You got all these the non-association laws and that, but they. What I've seen, you know what I mean? I got a friend of mine, he was in your club and um, he trains a, a really red-hot fighter and he can't go to a licensed premises, but a, a pedophile can go to a Wiggles concert. Yeah, it's putrid. It's what they've painted to the public and it's what the, it's what the public want because they've painted this picture of they're such bad people. I mean, we, uh, should, be, we should be looking at these pedophiles and that a little bit more closer than we're looking at the bikies, you know what I mean? I've been, I've been at the top of an outlaw bike club, you know what I mean? Any, anyone that would hurt a kid or to do a crime like that in a bikie club, you'd be dealt with in a bad manner. So that, yeah. that just shows that 
their morals in the right place. Yeah. And these these blokes that shouldn't be going to wheel concerts and yeah. walking around primary schools, they're not, and they're being dealt with a lot less than crazy, a lot less harsh, harsher. Let's go on. So, what happened, mate? You you're in the club. What did you get pinched for? What did you go to jail for? Yeah. So we end up, so we got charged with murder mm. over the death of uh, Michael Strike at the Brunswick uh, Brunswick chapter. Mm. Was he a member? No, nah, he was just associate of a, of another chapter, yeah. of another Bandito chapter. Yeah, he he come to clubhouse with a bit of a disagreement, and obviously a fight broke out, and yeah, uh, he passed away from his injuries. But we'll charge with we'll charge with murder eight months later yeah. after after the after the body was found. Yeah, so we'll charge with murder. Obviously, went to prison on remand and ended up getting downgraded to manslaughter. But um. And what did you what you get for that? How long did you have to do? So I got eight with the, I got eight with the six for the manslaughter. Yeah, and I ended up getting two more years for the MRC riots that mm. kicked off when I was in there on remand. Is that over the smoking? Was yeah, that- yeah. So when they took away the smokes, mm. obviously a friendly protest was meant to happen, and nothing friendly ended up being no, about it. That, when yeah. they start shooting gas at you, it's never friendly. Yeah, try it. So that's interesting for people. What's the intensity like in a jail riot? Uh huh. Yeah, it was right off. So you you got you got four surrogate yards that become one. Yeah. Fences come down, and a lot of you know a lot of blokes had even ups to do. And as you probably as you know yourself, that jail is pretty intense at the best of times in the unit, or if there's tension between one or two blokes. Yeah. When you got tension between you know a couple hundred blokes. Yeah, it's. Uh, and when, when, when the riot was going on, was they were they all at each other, bashing each other in it? Yeah, I mean a lot of lot of blokes got cleaned up there. A lot, a lot of blokes got cleaned up, even up. Everyone got evened up. I mean the the protection the protection unit of the slot was broken into, and protection prisoners were dealt with. <laughs> um, ones for you know preacher crimes. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, so they probably got the right whack, but um, I, I I know like I spent I spent twenty three years in prison, and I. In that time, like, I remember the first time I started going to prison, you, you could square up on those sort of people, you know, and we could do our own justice on them. And then in the end there, the screws just pamper them and look after them, give them preferential treatment and give them jobs to piss blokes like us off. Yeah, yep. yeah. And as an abuse survivor, man, I used to, that, used, that stuff used to kill, kill me when I used to see some pedophile and some cream job eating fucking cakes that the screws are brought in yeah. for them and, and thinking that they're good blokes. Yeah, well, we, we hear about it here too. Obviously now uh, the prisons all surrogate, and if you're in protection, you're protection. If you're mainstream, you're mainstream. So we don't we don't really even get to see them, but we hear stories that yeah they they get the best. I mean uh, one of the new prisons they built has got aircon, and you know I mean and blokes from the kitchen would tell us that they get they get double the desserts that we get, and yeah, it's just pure and that that that's going to sex offenders and you mm. know. It's key, crazy, yeah, key fuckers, and that's and, and the public aren't aware of it because the, the screws all paint this picture that they're hard done by, they work too hard, and and that you know they're there to, to give people justice and that. And pff, people have got no idea. Nah, yeah, and the rehabilitation in there is putrid. Did you experience any of the hotel motel conditions that's reported in the media about prison? Nah, I mean we we used to <laughs> we used to read this from window and we'd say, well, "What know with this stuff? No, but fuck, we should be there." Yeah, you know I mean? my thing is if you're staying at a hotel or a motel, as anyway, I get a refund. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. If you're staying, staying in a hotel where you get a mouldy toast in the morning that's cold that was cooked two hours before, <laughs> you know what I mean? A shitty little lunch with yeah. a bit of salad on the side. And locked in a yard all day on a freezing cold day. Yeah. When you went to jail, was it, you know, you are just forgotten and someone was going to take over your job as a, as a sergeant of arms? Yeah, we, you know, when you're out, when, before you get locked up and, you know, you think you're, you know, I'm sergeant, and, you know, you walk around with your chest out and that a bit, I guess, and mm-hmm. then, you, then you find yourself in a place like that and you realise that this club's going to run if you're here or not. Yeah. This job's going to be done if you're there or not. You know what I mean? The the brothers are going to go on and keep doing what they're doing. They're going to be pardoned on weekend. They're going to have the girls. They've got the money. You're now in jail worth 140 a month, and um, nothing really changes for the people on the outside. It mm. all changes for you. And then you lose that sense of any empowerment that you did have. Like Obviously, being sergeant, you're, you know, you're the top of the food chain sort of thing of the club. And then you become in there, and you're still trying to um, you're still trying to give orders and this and that. But someone's already taken. Some, there's a new sergeant already out there. Mm. They've sort of forgot. They've about, replaced you real quick. Well, yeah. they forgot about Johnny Walker. Now it doesn't really matter what he says. We'll ask this bloke what he says. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so you learn real quick. And then um, over, the, I mean, six years. I was still a bandito six years into my sentence. It wasn't until the last two years that I pulled the pin. Mm. 
but you learn real quick in there that your say becomes nothing anymore. Mm. You know what I mean? And yeah, that, that brotherhood that you once had. I mean, I understand that. Did people, you feel betrayed? In, in a way, I did because obviously when I was when I was sergeant and um, we had blokes go to prison that I'd always make sure the prospects were in there visiting them and probate to do their bit and prospects to write letters and keep their mor- morale up, spirits. Because it's important to feel loved, mate. Yeah, isn't it? yeah. And obviously, I had, a, I had a son and a missus out here. And when I, when I say this, I'm not saying it about the whole club because there was members of the club that did reach out and put their hand in the pocket and help me out with things. But they were. They were people that were, I was already very close with and best mates with before we went to the club together sort of thing. So as an organisation, your way of thinking should be everyone should be looking after you. Like, yeah? Well, when, when we're out here, well, I mean, when we, we're already together, if one brother has a problem, we all have a problem. What yeah. if, well, you know, if it's a, if it's a serious matter, we we all got each other's back. And mm. I feel that when you when I went in there, I, you know, I can't speak for everyone. I mean, mm. there's a, I've got a lot of I've got a lot of good mates that are still in clubs today and they've been you, you, in our jail. I, I can tell you now, you're yeah. really still respected by that club. That, yeah. You know, yeah. I know the national there and he, mate, he, he still holds you in high regard. You yeah. Know? Well, he's a, he's a top bloke. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, and, and obviously my, my fallout was over two members in Melbourne and I, I remember speaking to the national and um, I remember saying to him that if I was a member in Sydney, I'd be a life member because... Mm. It's it's a little bit different up there yeah. than it was, and, and Mal, this Melbourne was good at one stage. But yeah. when I went to prison, like I said, that job gets pl- replaced by someone else. That person that come in and done that job didn't care about me, just cared about his own gains. And yeah. two so, two members that were here in Melbourne at the time that aren't members anymore. I mean, that's the reason we're all not there today, and changed my life for the better anyway. But yeah. it, it wasn't six years into my sentence that wasn't the way I was going. I, you know, I would have been probably still there. Let's go through the process. So I just because a lot of people are fascinated by the process of joining a club. You you you, you join a club as sort of like a hang around, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah, yeah. And and then what can you explain so, the process yeah. all the way to being a so, patch member? I mean you, you got people that become hang arounds, you got people that become prospects. It's sort of on the it's and what's on, a prospect? What's in what's that entail? So you're a prospect, so I mean you're there on the anything the brothers need, you know what I mean? I mean a, a prospect at the Bandidos, we'll serve drinks, we'll clean the clubhouse, prepare the clubhouse for Friday nights. If members are coming in from interstate, go to the airport, pick them up, make sure they get back to the airport, make sure they get to a hotel room. I mean, in in easier terms, you're a lackey. Yeah. You're a lackey yeah. for the club. Yeah. Then you go up to a probate. And then you've got the bottom rocker on that. Yep. So and it's probation. It says probationary. Yeah. I mean, now you're you're being looked at to be a member. Rocker. Can you just explain what a rocker is on the patch? Yeah. So a rocker. So you have uh, as a prospect, you have no rocker. You just have a you have a bottom rocker, which just says prospect. That's the, on the patch. That yeah. It will say prospect, and then yeah. obviously you go up to the next uh, next stage, which is probate, which you'll have you have banditos with the Mexican with probationary on it. Mm. And then you're obviously full patch. When you see Australia on a on a patch, you know they're a full patch member. Full patch member. But um, yeah. So pro- when you're a probationary, you obviously you're being looked at to, you know, to be a member. Mm. But you're not not quite there yet. You're still un- like, like it says under a probationary. But how often is, is it? Does it on an individual basis? But how long, on average, does it take from being a, a prospect to to a, to a full patch member? I mean, it, it varies. Different people, different times. I mean, I've seen. I've seen blokes last on probate for four years. Hmm. You know what I mean? Where because they're playing up. And they just wouldn't. playing up, like messing up on the piss. Or so as, as a prospect, you're not meant to drink. So hmm. yeah, I mean, that's what I mean. The I mean the the general public's got a lot of bad things to say, but it's very it's very structured. Like if you're a militant, pros- to, yeah, to it is. Yeah, if you're a, if you're a prospect, you're not you're not drinking or taking drugs or anything like that you can't you can't do that as a you're on call is that right you're on call and if they need i mean if a member's drunk and needs to lift home you're you're that person yeah so it's not like you're coming into the club and becoming a alcoholic and a menace yeah. if anything you're i've seen blokes come i've seen blokes come to the club that were obviously expecting to come to an outlaw club and be an outlaw and they've haven't even made haven't even got through the prospect period because they couldn't they couldn't work out why they weren't allowed to drink or and they didn't have the discipline because there's a certain sort of certain 
you know, sort of discipline to sort of make it to that stage, isn't it? One hundred percent. It's and it's all discipline. I mean, when at one stage you couldn't be younger than twenty four, twenty five to patch anyway. Mm. So when you're twenty five years old, going to an outlaw club and being told you're not allowed to have a drink on a Friday night, and everyone else is pissed, mm. or you can't snort this, or you can't do that, or you can't touch the girls. Mm. You know what I mean? So yeah, it becomes um, it is uh, very disciplined, and you either want to do it or you don't. You know, my organisation, the Voices of the Survivors, we have a lot of survivors of institutional abuse and, and, and a lot of them end up in clubs and, and a lot of them say that they found that safe place where they belong Yeah, in clubs, you know, and um, it's, it's really, it's, and I get it. I get it. A brotherhood, people are going to have their back, people that are not allowed them to get jumped or abused or anything like that, you know, yeah. it's... Um, and these people are really taken back by these laws. They said, you know, the same people, the government who abused us, are taking part and telling me I can't be part of my brotherhood. A hundred percent, and I agree with that. I agree with that to a T. You know, I mean, if 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 you don't, if you go to a club without family, without without a missus, without kids, or even if you do have a kids but it's a broken relationship, I mean, you go from having twenty people on your phone to over a hundred. You know what I mean? Mm. And even more, once you once you get familiar with the club and know members from all around the world, I mean, your phone, you've you've got an endless list of numbers you could call when need. You know, that, that might be for anything. Your car's broken down, whatever. That can be anything. You're moving house. So I can see, you know, and, you know, that the attraction for me probably wasn't that exactly because I obviously had a family and... You know, I, had, I had a lot of friends before I went to the club. Mm. It was just strictly the brotherhood and not having that anymore from the boxing and, yeah, going there you, and having it. You're, you're, you're known as a bloke with plenty of integrity. You're also known as a bloke that uh, that can, will sort the bullies out. You're known as a bloke for your toughness and that sort of thing. Did you, like, encounter any sort of bullying in that in the clubhouse or any, in the club itself? Oh, just, you, I mean, you, you get it everywhere, you know. I mean, yeah. like footy, uh, you know, I've got mates that play footy too. Mm. That uh, you know, A grade footy and that they get it, they get that in the change rooms or, yeah. I mean it happens everywhere. It happened, I mean it happened in our club. It happens in all clubs. I mean, but that that for me, being the sergeant and most people that are put in that sergeant role, we'll sort that. We'll sort that. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like, good. It's a clubhouse with an open bar, and you know people get drunk and things get said and yeah. I mean there's a lot, there's a, there's a lot of fights between. Female over females, and you yeah. know that's it's it was a it was a regular thing, you know. But if you've got a good sergeant at any club or uh, anyone that's or enforcer or whoever's run the club, mm. that that should that should should be should hit yeah. on the head. You know what I mean? Would it would it be fair to say it was your sort of position to sort of to keep the guys bonded? Hundred percent. Yeah, you have club night every Friday night, but we'd make sure we always went on rides and had had dinners and lunch, and we'd all catch up and. Listen, the the bandits are a very uh, family orientated club too. You know what I mean? So mm. you know, the missus and all the girls would get together, and so yeah, it was you know. Was and family's important to you, yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Mate, going you know going to prison. Obviously, for, I, I can tell you for myself. You know, you you don't realise, but you're just about to head into a traumatic zone. Yeah. So how did you 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 know what was your obviously with the boxing that I was obviously very headstrong, but. When I done the 20, 23 months, twenty three hour lockdown, one hour out a day. Was that was that an MRC or no? Nah, that was at Paul Phillip yeah. in the Charlotte unit. I rated and most other people rated as probably the most putrid lockdown unit you can have in Victoria. What were you in there for? For the MRC riots. Yeah. So we got I got locked in there for that, and then I was you know most blokes from the MRC riots only did fourteen months. Mm. I done that little bit extra because of the bikey stuff. There was a lot of bikey stuff going on at the back mm. of Paul Phillip at the time. But yeah, but you don't you don't realise the trauma and that it does to you in that twenty three hour lockdown. I, I probably haven't realised until now I've got out. Yeah, and um, you look back on that time and you, and you think you're you're in a bad place. And you, I didn't even know I was in a bad place when I was there. But when you get out, and I mean, I didn't understand trauma until I started doing trauma counselling. Yeah, and it was explained to me. Yeah, I mean, I've, I mean, I've seen a psychologist that when I was in prison still and went outside and. I've got ADHD and PTSD and, I mean, a lot of that, I mean, ADHD you're obviously born with, but uh, that obviously, that explains a lot of my actions growing up. Mm. Uh, the PTSD probably comes from, you know, childhood and prison and even through the boxing career and just putting that pressure on yourself and and just things I've seen, obviously, over the years. And But um, you don't, yeah, you don't really, now that I've, 
now I've changed my way of thinking and um, now my son, obviously when I went to prison, he was eight, now he's 16. So I look at a lot of things through his eyes too and um, you don't realise the trauma of, you know, trauma of childhood and prison. And in a generational trauma. Yeah. The trauma that you pass on to them, yeah. Yeah. You know How does that so, make you feel that? Like, you know, the effects that your actions have had on your, on your kids? Yeah, you know what, well, that's probably the... That's probably the biggest trauma that I've got from uh, going to prison and then obviously not, you don't feel that, I, I believe, I didn't feel that during my prison sentence, but it was when, it was towards the end of it, you know, when, um, you know, you have to look at your son in the eye and, you know, for a long time there, I couldn't tell him how long I had because he was too young to understand. He didn't even know what I was in there for. It wasn't until I knew he got out that he was fully aware and... My kids thought I was painting a Sydney Harbour Bridge. Yeah. And they, they, yeah, they thought that, and yeah. they kept on saying, "Like, when are you finishing?" I said, "Oh, well, we got to start again." I hated yeah. lying on yeah. you know. Well, my niece is five now, and we still talk about when Uncle John John was at work. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So that's that's exactly. I mean, it's a it's a lie, you know. And obviously, my son Tyler, he he knew where I was, but he he didn't know what I was in there for. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and he'd be every visit, every week, he'd be saying, "When are you coming home, Dad?" Oh, soon, mate, soon. Did you have regular contact with your with your young bloke? For yeah, a, every every week I had contact with my son. Um, me and my ex partner broke up after four, after I'd done four years. Yeah. I was in there for four years. It didn't work out between us. She's a good mum, and yeah, she stayed solid by me and always let me see my son. And oh, that's good. That's yeah. good. Let's go on to the prison itself. So you you get your what you got? You got eight with a six, did you? I got eight with a six for the man. End up doing ten with a seven. Yeah, with all the charges. Yeah. So. Is that what you served, seven? Nah, I served seven years, nine months. I went nine months over. Yeah? yeah. What was their reason for knocking you back for parole? Listen, parole, parole in Victoria now, is, it's, pu- it's a putrid setup. Yeah. It's, um, it's not a, it, they'll send you a letter saying it's not a given. Mm. You know what I mean? It's a, like, it's a blessing if you get it. So, mm. I mean, there's, there's blokes in there that can't get a suitable address, and that suitable address might mean that it's not suitable for them. Yeah. I've seen blokes try to get out to their mum or dad or you can't go there because you've offended from there 20 years ago or your dad's got a criminal record for 25 years ago. So it's not a suitable address, even though the family's willing to take him in. Mm. So we have blokes sitting in Victorian jails that can't get parole for simple things like that. Yeah, it's crazy. So, But, but they'll be willing to send you to some men's hostel that are full of other crims. 100%. And that's, I mean, that's that, and that, that's exactly right. I mean, there's places here in Victoria where, if you can't get parole, you, they'll send you there. You're there with other crimes. It's like being back in jail. Yeah. And then, obviously, when I was in prison, obviously I was around outlaw bikies, and a lot of them were my good mates. Mm. You know what I mean, now I'm on NA. I can't talk to them people. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I mean, but they're happy to. They're happy for me not to, if if I didn't get parole. They're happy for me to sit. And we had to. Me and my partner really had to fight to get parole. Yeah. Really, really had to. Like fight to get it. If, it if we didn't put in the effort we did I believe I'd still be in there yeah you know what I mean alright yeah. how, how did your jail go like after the riots did you sort of settle down and sort of kick into it yeah well obviously I've done the 23 month slot so obviously you're pretty you're pretty settled in there anyway mm. obviously you can't do much um, can't run out with anyone you run in the yard on your own I, I probably didn't settle during that time obviously I, then I went out to the back unit support Philip back with all the other other brothers and the mm. banditos and obviously we ran a we ran a muck out there uh we had full control of the unit that we were in you know what i mean so i didn't i really didn't pull my head in with attitude wise until probably the last couple of years mm. until i met my new partner that i'm with now and and just looked at um looked at things a bit different than i that i looked at you know it's what I mean? amazing the influence of a strong woman can have in your life isn't it yeah you know just point you in the right direction and i mean i, I always had their morals to go in the right direction but and I wasn't I was never easily led so I was never led by anyone but it was just that just a negative attitude and mate let's talk about the day you got out I mean it's nothing better than walking through them uh, gates you know I mean seeing your family and that and yeah obviously for me I got out and went up to my ex-partner's place and surprised my son and my niece and Mm. yeah pretty much unforgettable day the day you first get out at the same time it's been overwhelming Mm. I mean, for the first three months, four months, I've been out nearly eight months now, but, you know, four months of that, when I first got out, I mean, there was times there where I I wanted to go back. Yeah. There was times where... Because there's a lot of responsibility. For me, the first day was good, and the second day was a realisation. Yeah. Hang on, I've got a shitload of responsibility here. Yeah, yeah. And not just that, but 
as you know yourself, obviously in there, everything is just so structured. Mm. I mean, you eat at the same time, you sleep at the same time, you train at the same time, your phone calls at the same time. Mm. And then you come out here and people want to be 10 minutes late or there's traffic or people aren't eating at 12 o'clock. They want to eat at 2 o'clock and you're like, hold on, no, I eat at 12 o'clock. You yeah. know what I mean? And just, just little things like that were throwing me out and obviously coming out with the phones. I was never real good on the phones before yeah. and then time I got out, they were even more Technology. upmarket. Yeah. That's another thing that... The prison, people don't realise when you do prison, you get starved of technology in there. Yeah. And one of the things that will beat you quicker than anything these days is technology. Yeah. yeah there's, right. no, there's no learning. Like, there's no... No I mean, rehabilitation in there. There's no rehabilitation at all. I mean, they, my seven years, nine months I did in there, I, there's not... I've done, I've done VIP courses and... What's I've, a VIP course? So it's a violence... It's a high violence course. Yeah. Yeah, so violent... In, intervention Yeah, intervention, or prevention or whatever, yeah. yeah. So I did that, and that went for six months, and I mean... Was it like a high-intensity one? Yeah, high-intense, yeah. And what, what did that entail? What they were trying to teach you? Were they... How to handle situations and to know your red flags, and obviously, as grown men, we all know our red flags. And, yeah. And I used to get into arguments with them all the time, saying, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? I, I'd put the question back on them. Yeah. And they couldn't answer it, you know what I mean? I thought, this is just a, this is the box ticker, you know? Yeah. Just tick the box. They're a red flag. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're my red flag at yeah, the moment. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Asking me stupid questions, you know what I mean? So I found that a lot in a lot of courses that these people would sit down with a book. They've got no lived experience. And they've got no answers. Yeah. They just read it out yeah. of the book and it's like they're robots. And that and that was my that was my argument. Like that it was all robotic. You yeah. know what I mean? They're just reading off a textbook and telling us how to handle a situation. They've never they've never lived life, they've never they they wouldn't know a situation. The public have got this belief that Prisoners go to prison as resort conditions. They live on five-star food and they spend all their day yeah. in rehabilitation course. What do you say to that? Yeah, well, there's no rehabilitation at all. The meals, I mean, I mean if you're getting served out at any, any hotel, motel, anything, a truck stop, anywhere, <laughs> you, you want to get your money yeah, back. You want to get your money back because the food in there is absolute putrid. I mean, the chicken at Port Phillip is black. Mm. Yeah, you know I mean, it's it, the meat where you get white chicken out here. It's black, mm. and obviously, like I said, breakfast is stale toast. Mm. You know what I mean, that, and if you don't if you don't have family and you can't get one forties put in a month, is that is that the amount of money you can get in your, your put in your account in, yeah. in Victoria? One hundred and forty bucks. One hundred and forty month. Yeah, is that so, it? Yeah, it's yeah, one hundred and forty a month. Yeah, it's wow. yeah. I mean, to live off that. I mean, and you know what? The food and, prices in there are no different to our idea. Yeah, when you go to the canteen and that it's not cheaper. Yeah. Um, I'll just can you just explain the buyout process there in prison? Yeah, so you get you get a canteen day once a week. So a, a canteen is like a lot of canned food, cereal, and you got to have that money. Your parent, your you, family, have got to put you the money. Have that money. If, if you, you don't, don't have, have that money, I think it's thirty dollars or twenty eight dollars a week you get from the prison mm. as a as a worker doing mm. whatever you do. That could be gardens. But out of that one forty, you've still got to pay for your phone calls and that sort of 100%, stuff. Hundred percent. Yeah. If you ring a mobile. Phone from a Victorian prison, it's $8 for 12 minutes. That's so. Telstra prices. That's yeah. a, the standard price on a phone call from a – I've done these costings on this. It's like $3.20 for a six-minute phone call from yeah. a phone box. Yeah. So to maintain contact with your family in there is very, very expensive, isn't it? 100%. And, I mean, during my last two years in there with COVID, there was no contact. Mm. You know what I mean? I mean, I was lucky I had – I always had money on the phone and uh, I had, like, landline set up, so – it was only a thirty cent call. Yeah, I mean, there's there's no rebuild. My last two years in there, there is, if anything, it was just aggravation. No visits. So you done COVID time, yeah? Yeah. So no visits. They forced us to get the vaccine. Still gave us no visits after promising they would after the vaccine. It's double time. Like, did they bring back remissions in, New- in Victoria? Nah. So it wasn't no remissions. What it was, uh, Port Phillip were so half the unit was out for six hours. The other half was out, so they locked half the unit down. So you get six hours out a day. But remissions. When I talk about remissions, they take take Good time behavior. off. Your, yeah, time yeah. off your sentence. Nah. That. Uh, I don't know, we lost that in the 90s, I think. It's yeah, never, but there was talk of it coming back in. Oh, is it? Because there was talk of it coming back in because of COVID. Yeah, well, I always, I always used to say to my partner, I mean, if that was that's that's a good thing. Mm. I mean, if you're, if you're going to prison, in Victoria, good chance you're not going to get parole anyway. Mm. It doesn't matter if you've done the right thing. If you haven't got everything set up outside family-wise, like the right place to go, not a heated area... If you haven't got all that, you're not going to get parole anyway. Yeah. So if you're looking at a 10-year sentence and you're not going to get parole, then what, would what, you, what would you behave yourself? What would you behave? Go yeah. in there and muck up. Yeah. You know what I mean? Go in there and do what you got to do. 
switch pace here now. Like, let's talk about your passion about you know helping young fellows. Yeah, I mean that's um, I mean that's that, that's my biggest drive. You know, obviously, like I said before, I've got a sixteen year old son. I mean, I look at him, I look at his mates. I see a lot of like kids, like like kids that struggle from through the boxing gyms and hard upbringings or whatever it is, whatever it may be. I mean, broken house, broken homes, um, drug affected parents, you know, abuse, uh, whatever it may be. And the biggest message I want to get out there is that you know you don't have to get in that path. That I think if I had someone like myself talking to a younger me, what would you say? What would you say to a younger you? Probably not so much, you know, through the boxing and that, I was always an angry kid, but I, was, I don't think it really got channeled out because of the boxing. I could channel it through that, you know what mm. I mean? So I never, I mean, if you took the boxing away, I believe I would have been doing prison from a young age like, like my mates were, you know what I mean? Mm. I just always ended up in the right place when they were in the wrong place at the wrong time, you know what I mean? Mm. I'd be home when they got pulled over or... I'd be at home sleeping for an amateur fight the next day. So it kept you out of trouble, yeah. It the kept you out of trouble. The structure of the boxing keep you out of trouble. Yeah. I, I say it. I say it all the time to people. You know, you want to get your kid, keep your kid yeah. out of trouble. Well, get him to a boxing. Yeah, gym. we're not. We're not. When I was in bed at nine o'clock on a Saturday night, the boys were out, and then they'd get pulled over in a stolen car, get into a cop chase, and at three, four in the morning. So I'd be in sleep that time, getting ready for an amateur fight the next morning. But um, yeah, but, I mean, the message that I'd get across to the kids is that you know you don't have to be in a gang or you don't have to be an outlaw biker. You don't have to be a recognised bad boy to, to be a tough bloke. You know what mm. I mean, you can be a, you can be a tough stand-up bloke without all that, you know what I mean? Some of the toughest blokes I've ever met were on building sites. 100%. A kid from the western suburbs, you, know, you always looked up to them tough blokes, that tough that tough man image as mm. a kid. And, yeah, I've, I mean, I always found that in boxing gyms and... You growing up where you grew up, Wharfies. Yeah, that, I mean they they were the be legendary blokes down that, yeah. that way. Street fight, like you know, people that didn't do jail, did weren't involved in gangs. Hundred percent, and they were tough. Yeah, and, I mean, if you went to a pub and mucked up, that yeah, you know, you'd know about it. Melbourne's got a reputation like long living the Kane brothers and that's right, yeah, and, and just real tough guys from down here. You know, what I mean, being from Sydney, I heard legendary stories of yeah. What's his name? Dave Hedgecock. Oh, Dave Hedgecock. Yeah, yeah. top bloke. Yeah. He's one that I'm telling you, he, he's probably one of the toughest blokes going around. I mean, for pound for pound, toe to toe. I mean, he, and we're talking, I mean, Dave's probably in his 70s now. And there's I been, mean, what, two or three assassination attempts on his life? Yeah. And he's a, he's a he's a genuine tough bloke. Like, yeah. I mean, I, he's done no jail or anything, has he? Nah, I've moved around with Dave as a kid, and I mean, he just touches you over, he throws you a mole, you know what I mean? Mm. He, he's tough, you know what I mean? Mm. He doesn't stand real tall. He, he's, he's, he's a nugget, you know what I mean? Yeah. There's a big thing happening in youth today, these code wars, you know, they're blokes fighting each other, stabbing each other, shooting each other just because they're from different areas. What do you say about that? Yeah, no, I mean, they got to um, – I remember there was a stabbing up in Brisbane not long ago at the Valley, and I, I put a thing up on social media saying, you know, just what he's doing, you know what I mean? Mm. I mean, I watched the footage of that and it was just, uh, it was just, pure, it was just a petty little argument. Two little, two little groups, you know, it was like who's got the biggest balls and then... And like, it escalates. And one bloke, you know, he got jabbed in the neck with a, with a shiv or, you know, I mean, he bled out within seconds. That's my biggest worry with my son, you know, being 16. I mean, I'd just say to, the, I'd say to these kids that are doing this, it's not worth it. Mm. I mean, you, you, I've said it before, you're going you're gonna to end up in jail and anyone that thinks they're a bit of a you know, stand-up sort of bloke, you end up in there, you get told when to piss, you get told when to strip, you get told when to go to bed. You get told when to wake up. You get told when you're allowed to make phone calls. I mean, if you if you think that's being a man to get ordered around like that, then your integrity is not in the right place. Because for me, that was the that was the biggest thing for me going to prison, being who I was and how I lived life. To going in there, being told what to do, when to do it. I mean, it's degrading, humbling too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? So I mean, these young kids that are getting around like gangsters and you know carrying shivs and. I mean, they're one second away from killing someone and spend their life in jail. When that happens, it's more than one person dies, doesn't it? It's like, yeah. you know, two families, like his family, the other kid's family are just devastated from yeah. it. One's visiting their family, a kid in life well, for 20 years. Well, that's what I said on the, with the kids from Brisbane, you know, one, one kid's going to jail, one, you know, one kid's going to jail for 25 years and now the other one's going to visit their kid in a, you know, at a, you know, for, uh, at a gravesite. So... I mean, there's no, there's no winners. There's a yard at Goulburn. 
and you've got a lot of Middle, middle Eastern kids there that really went through that escalation of shooting up houses and shooting at coppers and everything like that and doing 30-year bottoms and everything like that. And I can remember talking to them and, you know, and they said, man, after, you know, I stopped seeing the funny side of it, you know, and when it got real, when you get a 30-year bottom. I understand. Once you end up in there, that's what I say to these kids. And I say it to my own son. Mm. You know, once you end up in there, it's too late. There's mm. no sorry book. Mm. You know, there's no there's no sorry book. So once you're in there, you're doing the time. Mm. And if it's and if it's a bad enough crime and and you do take a life, and you go down for murder, I mean you you're doing 25, 30 plus these oh, these time. You know. What do you say about that brotherhood? That like these kids are thinking they're in some sort of brotherhood. What do you say about that? Definitely, as a as a, a kid gang or a street gang or. Anyone that thinks that's brotherhood, there's no brotherhood. Mm. I mean, they're, they're, they're pumping each other's tyres up to do someone else's dirty work or their own dirty work or to stab a kid over because you live on that side of the street and I live on this side of the street. It's pointless. I mean, they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna fuck their lives, their families. What a heartache. Impression. And we're talking about young kids, 16, <laughs> 17, even younger. Yeah. You know what I mean? So to destroy your life at 14 and do 30, it was hard enough for me to come out after doing eight with everything that changed. With, with the family support. It is, and family, and, you, and you're blessed, mate, because a lot of these kids, mate, by the time you end up finishing one of those sentences, there's not many people around. No. And and the mates and the, the so-called brotherhood, they're the first ones gone. They're first ones gone. So these young kids that think they're getting around, like, yeah, like gangsters, and, you know, he's my brother and I'll do anything for him, and <laughs> when they go to jail and end up in juvie, then go to adult prison, and they're getting touched up for their shoes or... Yeah, you know what I mean, or their mates aren't going to be there no more. Yeah, you know what I mean, they'll soon realise how a lonely existence that brotherhood is. Yeah, what what what, what do you do these days to avoid sort of conflict or you know get, getting yourself into trouble? You know what it is? It's just uh, it's I believe it's getting your priorities right. You mm. know what I mean, like touching back on before I said about the high VIP, they'll have these strategies you put in place and. This will be a red flag. Don't turn left. Don't turn right. I mean, it's just a ticking box. It's just a bullshit course. I believe that you know it's on. It's on yourself. Back in my early twenties, late twenties, you know what I mean. Someone looked at me at the bar. It was who's got the biggest balls. Now, you know what I mean. I'd I, you know I'd say to anyone that's walking around with the same attitude that I had that it's not worth it. You know what I mean. And and sometimes it takes you to go into a place like prison to work that out. You know what I mean. Like when you stop getting the phone calls and you lose that, you know. It's the only existence in there, isn't it? Mate? Yeah, you're you're one out. I mean, you're in there with a lot of people, but you're you're one out. Everyone's got their own journey. Mm. Everyone's got their own demons, their own issues, their own family problems. So you're one. You're you're definitely one out in there. I mean, that's another thing about these kids. That I look on TikTok and stuff like that, and I see, you know, these kids are glorifying jail. I'm the first one to get on there and say, man, it's yeah, a no. fucking lonely. I'll give them the reality check. Yeah, yeah. I know. I'll, I'll be I'll be the next one to say it too. I'll, it's a it's a putrid place, and if if you think that. You want to go there to you know, build your reputation or whatever you know. If if it's a street gang or whatever, you, whoever you're running with as a kid, if that's you know what they want you to do to to prove that you're a you know bigger man. You know I mean, look at look at the person that's asking you to do it and look at look at what you're doing because once you get in there, it's a very lonely it's a very lonely place and a lot you know a lot of listen a lot a lot of these people that do these. They can't stand their own two feet. Yeah, you know what I mean. I mean, look at look at yourself in the mirror and the bloke that you stab in the neck. Would you fight him one on one? And if you're not going to do that, then don't go to jail because you're not always going to have a shiv in your hand and you will get caught out. You, know, you can't always be armed up. No, nah, that's and right. Someone will catch you out. Yeah, when you're in there, there's no there's no there's no guns. Then you know what I mean. You might get a shitty homemade shiv, but it's not, it's not going to. You know, if someone if someone can fight, how did I mean? you get, like, mate? You had a big reputation here in Melbourne in Australia. As a fighter, how did you go in there? Did you, did you find people wanted to challenge you? Or? Um, probably early on. I wouldn't say challenge, but, you know, everyone's interested. Oh, you're a boxer, you're this, you're that. You make your path in there pretty quick. Did you sort of make an example of someone or, or somebody, you know? In- uh, not. Listen, you got in prison, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah, because there's that one fight that'll carry you for your whole jail Yeah, sentence. that's right, that's right. Yeah, there's yeah. that one fight, you get yeah. a good win, and, yeah. ev- and everyone remembers that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, I've been punched on in the street for 12 years before I got in there, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I was already known as I could look after myself. Yeah, and that's the thing too. Bullet- jails are full of bullies. Yeah, you know 100%. What I mean? And they're always looking for a, a soft target. 100%. And they wouldn't have found one in you. Yeah, that's right. And I, and I, was, I, you know, I see that, like, I see kids come to young kids, 19, 20, skinny, can't fight. And obviously... 
we're probably getting around with street gangs, and when they were out here twenty deep, they were, you know they'll probably they were something yeah, out here. They were the kid, they were the ones stabbing the kid in the neck. Yeah, and then they get in there and they get the shoes taken off them and get slapped around and end up in protection. And mm. I mean, uh, there'd be a lot of kids sitting in protection now that I, that I've seen during my eight years in there that don't deserve to be in protection. They're not dogs. Mm. Uh, they're just uh, they're just not tough. Yeah, and that I mean that and that's that's a perfect message to say to these kids that. Just because you're out here and you walk around with 20 deep, when you get in there, you'll be on your own. Yeah. And when the shoes come off and you're crying to the screws, yeah. you will, you will end up in protection. Yeah. Yeah, mate. It's not so much fun then, is it? Nah, that's right. So, mate, I, I see you're working with the CFMAU as a union union delegate. And, um, you know, I put a post up the other day and I thought the CFMAU couldn't have a better man fighting for their rights because by nature you're a fighter. Yeah, and I mean, and what they're, what they're yeah, exactly right. What And that's what they're all about is... Um, you know, health and health and safety of their workers, better conditions, better paying conditions. Every construction worker in Australia, in in the world, really de- deserves to go home to their loved ones after mm. a hard day's work. I mean, how serious? How, how serious do you take that position? Oh, very serious. I mean, like like I said, everything I do, I try to do to my high standard. Mm. The the unions help me. They've given me opportunity that like no one else would have gave me. Yeah, you know I mean, like you, you come out from prison. And they've given me this opportunity, so I've taken it in my stride to do it the best I can. And I mean, and it's—I mean, in, in prison, I was a peer listener, and so sort of the, it's the same basis. It's, you're like a union rep for the prisoners. Yeah. You know right. I mean, so I've come out here, and I mean, looking out for the boys' safety and making sure their pays are right, and making sure a job site is safe, and all the regulations are up to standards. I mean, that's for me to go home and know that the workers are going home safe because of my actions and, and the other shoppies' actions. Yeah. Unions get a bad rap in this country. Yeah, I was about to say, like, you've got a lot of blokes out there, workers that look down, like, on non-union sites and they look down on what we do. Mm. And I just think, are, are, you, are you crazy, mate? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, we're getting the better money. We're getting the safer conditions. You're hanging out of a scissor lift or a, you know, cherry picker welding on the side and... I yeah. find that amusing. I find yeah. those people that have been because it's brainwashed. Yeah, it's brainwashed. They, they get right. brainwashed by these LNP governments to think that unions are a bad thing. Yeah. Why would you be dirty on something that fights for you to have better working conditions, yeah. better pay? Yeah. Why would you do that? Yeah. Let's talk about you know you have got a beautiful partner, Sarah. How how things going there? Yeah, good. We're going on uh, been together now for just under four years. Mm. Um, yeah, Sarah came into my life. When I was about three years out of getting out of prison. And she's a she's a criminal lawyer. Yeah, we we met through friends. We knew each other before that, but obviously met through friends and got closer. But yeah, she's I mean she's been my biggest support. Well, without um, that support, man, that, that's, yeah. that's that's hard, eh? Yeah, I mean when I, obviously when I come out, I wasn't working, and obviously she had a stable job, and she made sure we had a st- I had a stable house to come to, and and she got she got the family all back together, like my family, her family, you know, put all that together. So I, I come out to a. You could say that structure. Yeah, I come out to a structure and a happy family, like from both sides. Which last night. Yeah, which is which wasn't the case before I went to prison. Mm. Yeah, I mean the family was sort of broken up, and mm. so and my and my ex and my ex partner Rochelle too, Tyler's mum. I mean she's she's the best mum you could ask for. Yeah, I mean so that I'm blessed there too. So I've just been blessed with family. You would talk about trauma and and all the things we th- we, we we deal with in those situations. I think love is the healer. Yeah. You'd say it mellows, mellows you out. Yeah. You know I mean, it, it gives you... For, Puts things in perspective. That's exactly right. And for, like, for me to... I mean, for me to go back to prison now, like, it'd have to be a very big muck-up. It'd have to be something that was out of the blue. Yeah, you know I mean, like, I've got... I've got Obviously, me and Sarah have better goals than that, you know, future plans. Yeah. What are they? Tell me. Oh, you know what I mean? Like, obviously, helping the young kids, that's always going to be... I just want to touch on something we haven't touched on. So you're, you're, you're a co-trainer at a boxing gym that... Yep. Is that the gym that you started boxing at? Yeah, so that's the that's the boxing gym that I finished boxing at, Tarnie Boxing Gym, up yeah. in Hoppers Cross in the western suburbs of Melbourne. Uh, that's run by Dave Hegarty and Andrew Woodall. So um, you get in there, spend some time. I get in there. Kids. Obviously, before I got the job with the union, I was in there a lot. Mm. I was I, I was actually training there, all the amateur kids. Mm. I've had to sort of step aside from that now with the job mm. and uh, do the right thing by the by the job and by myself. You know what I mean? Obviously, mm. got to, been in prison for eight years. I've got to get back to, you know, mm. Gotta get the bank balance back up. So, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I still, I still get down there when I can, and obviously, I'm obviously in the corner with all the boys when they fight the pros and the amateurs. So, mm. yeah. 
Life's good, mate. Life's good. Mate, uh, really good to see that a transition back into the community. Good to see that, um, you know, you've got a, a great job, a great partner. Great to see that, you know, and I see your passion about helping young kids. Every time I look on Instagram or Facebook or whatever, you're, you're holding the pads for kids and doing stuff like that. And great to see the relationship with your son, how you're mending that. Yeah. And, uh, mate, it's just great to have you here. Yeah, I appreciate you, Russell, for letting me come on here and tell my story. And you're always going to have critics, you know what I mean? Mm. But, um, you know I mean, I've, I've come out from doing my years. You know I mean, I just want to get on with my family. With my partner Sarah, you know, be there for my son. Yeah, I mean, the one one of the biggest things for me in there was if I didn't get my parole, I would have missed my son's 18th birthday. And missing every birthday from eight years old, I thought, you know what, I can I can handle it mentally mm. and I can deal with this. But if I if I miss this kid's 18th birthday because of parole not giving me parole, or or even me now being out here and breaching on parole, I mean that that's something that I wouldn't live with. Yeah, you know I mean that's something that you know would eat me up forever just being out here for his 18th birthday so I mean that's that's one of my goals too just to make sure I'm here for that and mm. I'm here for him for from now on you know I mean I, I said to him when I come out I'll never leave you again mate so you know I mean I, I like to stick by my word and I do stick by my word with everything I do that's one of my biggest drives just right there good on you mate Johnny Walker thanks for being on the stick up thanks Russell thanks mate <laughs>